0: Life After Bresco miniseries part five, the court's approach to imposing a stay on enforcement of an adjudication decision in favour of an insolvent company.
1: You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial, construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers.
2: Hello and welcome. Welcome. This is the fifth podcast in a series dealing with the practical implications of Michael J. Longsdale Electrical Limited versus Bresco Electrical Services Limited in liquidation 2020 UK SC 25 for those seeking to enforce or resist enforcement of adjudication claims brought by insolvent companies post Bresco. I am John Dennis Smith and I am joined by Marion Smith QC, David Sautel and Rebecca Drake. We are all members of the commercial and construction team at 39 Essex Chambers, experienced in adjudication and adjudication enforcement proceedings. In this episode, we discuss the court's approach to imposing a stay on enforcement in circumstances where the company seeking to enforce an adjudicator's decision is Insolvent.
3: Now, this is a practical session, and we are using a problem question in these podcasts. So, to introduce the uh, participants, Sparky Limited or Sparky is a subcontractor, and they are engaged by Employer Co Limited or Employer Co, and they are constructing three retail parks under similar contracts. All providing for adjudication under the scheme for construction contracts. Retail Park One completed in 2014, final account agreed, and the retention was paid. In Retail Park Two, valves completed in 2015, the final account was agreed, but Employer Co has held on to retention, citing unspecified defects. Retail Park 3 was completed in 2016. There are problems throughout the project. employer code reported to terminate the subcontract. The parties cannot agree a final account. In 2017, Sparky entered insolvent liquidation and the liquidators assigned claims to calculus. And we saw in the last podcast the issues that might cause. So, Sparky, supported by Calculus, commences an adjudication in respect of Retail Park 3, gets a declaration entitled to an order for payment in respect of £350,000. In 2019, the Retail Park owner approaches Employer Co. about concerns in respect of electrical supply to Retail Park 1, which Employer Co. is still investigating, not determined cause of those problems. Uh, Sparky has issued proceedings to enforce the decision for judgment in the sum of £350,000 seeking the usual expedited tcc directions in its evidence uh, calculus has given and agreed to a number of conditions paying the adjudicated sum into a separate bank account as ring fenced specifically for the purpose In an earlier podcast we discussed what might be meant by the term ring fenced and is relying on a policy of ate insurance provided by insurer co they'll pay out if employer co wins a trial and again that's something that we discussed in an earlier podcast
0: we we always set the scene by summarising the, the Supreme Court decision in Bresco. I think, as we all know, they took a different approach from the TCC and the Court of Appeal. Consistent with the Court of Appeal, they agreed that the adjudicator has jurisdiction to determine construction disputes brought by insolvent companies. But taking a different approach to the Court of Appeal, they allowed the Supreme Court allowed such adjudications as they were not an exercise in futility. We have had the first significant TCC, and I deliberately stress that, TCC first instance decision, John Doyle Construction Limited and Erith Contractors Limited, in which Mr Justice Fraser refused enforcement of an adjudicator's decision where the claimant was insolvent liquidation. And we have discussed that in early earlier podcasts in this series. And I think as David mentioned in relation to the last episode in this mini-series, we know that there has been a county court decision which was reached before Mr Justice Fraser's decision was handed down. But obviously moving forward, John Doyle is going to be the benchmark. So
2: Rebecca, um, the assumption is that the application to enforce has been granted But can that judgment be stayed? And if so, what is the court's approach going to be?
1: Well, John, Mr. Justice Fraser based his decision on CPR part 50, which incorporates certain parts of the rules of the Supreme Court, including RSC Order 47, which deals with the stay. And the principles relating to that operation of the stay are set out in Wimbledon Construction Company, 2000 Limited and Derek Vago, 2005, EWHC 1086 by His Honour Judge Peter Coulson QC, and these principles were adopted in Arith. A stay should only be awarded in special circumstances. He specifically considered the stay of an adjudicator's decision on the basis of the receiving party's financial position and listed at paragraph 26, six relevant principles. The first is this, adjudication whether pursuant to the 1996 Act or the consequential amendments to the standard forms of building and engineering contracts is designed to be a quick and inexpensive method of arriving at a temporary result in a construction dispute. Although, of course, we do have to question the accuracy of that statement after the decision in Erith, which focuses on adjudication, often being a final decision in practice. The second principle is this, In consequence, adjudicators' decisions are intended to be enforced summarily, and the claimant being the successful party in the adjudication should not generally be kept out of its money. That principle still remains. The third principle, in an application to stay the execution of summary judgment arising out of an adjudicator's decision, the court must exercise its discretion under RSC Order 47 with considerations A and B, the first two principles firmly in mind. Principle D, the probable inability of the claimant in the enforcement action to repay the judgment sum, that's the sum awarded by the adjudicator and enforced by way of summary judgment, at the end of the substantive trial or arbitration hearing may, constitutes special circumstances within the meaning of Order 47 Rule 11a rendering it appropriate to grant a stay. So that is within the judge's discretion. Principle E, if the claimant is in insolvent liquidation, as is the case with Sparky here, or if there is no dispute on the evidence that the claimant is insolvent, then a stay of execution will usually be granted. So we say here, because Sparky is an insolvent liquidation, that's the starting point. A stay of execution will usually be granted. However, that is subject to the sixth principle, principle F, which is this. Even if the evidence of the claimant's present financial position suggests it is probable it would be unable to repay the judgment sum when it fell due, that would not usually justify the grant of a stay if either A, the claimant's financial position is the same or similar to its financial position at the time that the relevant contract was made. Or B, the claimant's financial position is due either wholly or in significant part to the defendant's failure to pay those sums which were awarded by the adjudicator.
0: So let's go back to our scenario. What, Rebecca, do you expect the judge's starting position to be in the light of those principles?
1: Well, as I say, the starting point is that Sparky is an insolvent liquidation, so a stay of execution should usually be granted. However, we have to consider whether either of the exceptions in F apply. So, Looking first at the claimant's financial position, we don't know from the facts we've been given whether or not it is in the same or similar financial position at the time the relevant contract was made. We suspect it probably wasn't, as it wasn't in liquidation then, but that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't insolvent in practice then, even if it hadn't entered formal proceedings. We would have to ask Sparky for the relevant accounts. Is the financial position due, in whole or in part, to employer case failure to pay Sparky the money due under the adjudication? In terms of timing, we know it went into insolvent liquidation in 2017, We don't know, but we get the impression the final account process should have been completed before it went into insolvent liquidation. So again, we'd have to seek more information from Sparky as to its accounts, but it certainly looks arguable that the exception applies, and that would mean a stay would not be
0: granted. And and the problem we have is that in these cases, they've been deciding it on the prior point as to whether or not to allow summary judgment or to injunct. They've not been looking at the stay David, we've been looking at companies in in insolvent liquidation. What do you think is going to be the approach of the court when considering an application for enforcement bought by a company in another form of insolvency?
3: Well, Marion, a stay of judgment is ultimately a discretionary matter for the court. Although the case law provides very important guidance that the courts will tend to follow, there is no rigid requirement to stay a judgment simply because a company has entered formal or even informal insolvency. And all of the factors uh, which were cited in Wimbledon Vago will need to be considered. All of the recent cases that we've been considering in this podcast series have generally involved companies in liquidation of one kind or another, with a decision of the Son Judge Parfitt possibly being the exception. Uh, the company is no longer an ongoing concern, and that is going to be a factor in an application for stay in any case. And Mr. Justice Coulson, as he then was said in Equitex and Bister in 2018, EWHC, at 177 TTC. But there are other kinds of insolvency, where the purpose of the insolvency will be to try to get the company up and running again. One potential statutory purpose of administration, for example, is to rescue the company as a going concern. If it's likely that the company will keep going and will be able to repay the adjudicated sum, this might mean that the judgment is not stayed, or that only a portion of it is stayed. As for company voluntary arrangements, which is a statutory form of schema arrangement, uh, Mr. Justice Coulson also made it clear in Mead General Building Limited against Dartmoor Properties uh, 2009 EWHC 200 TCC that a mere fact a company was in a CVA did not mean that a judgment would automatically be stayed. At paragraph 12 in that case, he outlined the following principles. Firstly, the fact that a claimant is the subject of the CVA will be a relevant factor to take into account when deciding whether or not to grant a stay. But secondly, the mere fact of a CVA will not of itself mean the court should automatically infer a claimant would be unable to repay any sums paid out in accordance with a judgment. Such a stay of execution should be ordered. Thirdly, the circumstances of both the CVA and and the claimant's current trading position will be relevant to any consideration of a state of judgment. And fourthly, it was also relevance was a point noted in F Little 2 of the judgment in Wimbledon and Vago, namely whether or not the claimant's financial position and/or the CVA is due, either wholly or in significant part, to the defendant's failure to pay the sums awarded by the adjudicator. So in that case, Mr Justice Coulson held that Dartmoor's failure to pay was a principal reason for Meade's financial difficulties. He also noted that the CVA itself demonstrated that Meade's creditors were continuing to support them, and that the independent supervisor, by accepting the CVA in its present form, had concluded that it had a good chance of success. He accepted that Meads were currently trading successfully, and there's no reason to believe that they would not be in a position to pay back any part of the judgment sum if, in a subsequent arbitration, the arbitrator concluded that they had been overpaid. So what I think cases such as Wilmington and Vago and Mead and Dartmoor show is that while the courts have laid down indicative criteria, ultimately, as Marion has said in earlier podcasts, each case is going to turn on its own facts. I agree.
2: It's a fact sensitive judgment because some of the factors concerning a CVA might sometimes lead to a refusal of summary judgment. In a case called West Shield Limited versus White House, that's 2013 EWHC 3576 TCC, the terms of the CVA provided for the same balance of rights and obligations that apply under the insolvency rules. Mr Justice Aikenhead therefore held that the claim should be treated in the same way as insolvent liquidation, which meant that summary judgment itself should not be ordered and was refused. Um, Here is a case about administration, which was by itself almost uh, an exam problem. Um, It was a case called Straw Realizations No. 1 Limited versus Shaftesbury House Developments Limited 2010 EWHC 2597 TCC. There were two adjudication decisions in circumstances in which paragraph 23 2a of the applicable scheme for construction contracts, as amended by the contract in that case, provided that the decision of the adjudicator shall be final as well as binding unless within three months of the giving of the adjudicator's decision any party to the dispute serves on the other party or parties notice in writing of its intention to refer the dispute or difference for final determination by legal proceedings one decision which became final predated the claimant going into administration the other postdated that moment and had not become final there had been no notice of distribution, which would have brought into play the application of set-off of cross-claims. It was held by uh, Mr Justice uh, Edward Stewart that summary judgment should be given in respect of the first decision, the one that predated the administration, but a stay was ordered following the precedent set in the decisions of Bouygues and Mead, which Dave uh, explained, on the ground that the respondent was not responsible for straws, financial difficulties, by any failure to pay out the first adjudicator's decision. The second decision, the one that pr- postdated the going into administration, was not enforced at all because it had not become final and it failed to be treated in the same way as where the claimant was insolvent or in administrative receivership. So summary judgment um, would not be given at all in that case.
1: So to conclude, whether or not a stay would be granted very much depends on the factual circumstances of the case. Thank you for listening to the fifth and final podcast in this series. We hope you have found it useful. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.